According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me if you would. Uh, tell you what, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4. How about that? Matthew chapter 4. Pick up where we left off on Wednesday. This is a doctrinal study that we're engaged in coming out of Philippians chapter 1 on calls to the ministry. Study that we launched in Philippians chapter 1 as we were learning related to uh, Paul and during his time of imprisonment that uh, there were those that were emboldened to preach the gospel. And uh, some did so for right reasons and some did so for wrong reasons. And uh, before we move on to the next uh, paragraph and the final portion of chapter 1, I thought it'd be useful if we would study this as a concept, as a, as a doctrinal study related to calls to the ministry. And so Matthew chapter 4 as we get going this morning, picking up where we uh, ran out of time Wednesday night. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father to set aside distractions and to humble us that we might receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. And Father, I thank you for stability that your word supplies. We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Father, that we have the, the anchor, we have a firm foundation, Father, we have the stability that comes by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Father, I do uh, just thank you for the, the flock here and brothers and sisters that are hungry for teaching and uh, they don't get caught up in all the, the craziness. Father, it's heartbreaking to me to, when brothers and sisters are, are uh, hearing things or seeing things or fearing things about the end of the world and silly uh, the silliness of it, Father, the various things. But uh, just work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Continue to use your scriptures, Father, to keep us grounded and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter 4. If you're following along in the outline, you'll understand that we started with an introduction under Roman numeral 1, and uh, then we moved on to a development under Roman numeral 2. In this development, we've had actually three developments, development applications. First of all, principles of ministry calling, and we had five of those that we ran through. I won't reteach them this morning, but there they are. We don't call ourselves. Um, we may have to leave temporal work. We may have to uh, depart from our secular career. And we're going to see that this morning, starting in our first text in Matthew chapter 4, when he calls Peter and James and these disciples to leave their uh, boats and to follow him. Uh, thirdly, ministry callings may entail a geographic relocation may uh, not be able to stick around in Antioch where you have such wonderful like-minded believers and you've got a, a team of Bible teachers and you can imagine how glorious everything was there in Antioch. I mean, who would want to leave that? And yet the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work that I have called for them to do. And, and uh, the geographic relocation. We're praying over those issues now. Even as Bob and Elvira are moving up to Seattle and praying for Kathy as she moves to Florida and praying for, you know, of course, Pastor Dan just went down to Corpus Christi and took the flock there. And so these things happen and they happen in the will of God and uh, we need to, to identify with that. Uh, point four was the fact that human qualifications are largely irrelevant to our ministry callings, that there's not many mighty, not many strong, not many wise according to the flesh, that God is not dependent upon our natural abilities. He may make use of them, he may not make use of them uh, as he glorifies himself. And then finally, uh, the fifth point from 1 Timothy 1.12, that ministries are assigned on the basis of faithfulness. If you are not faithful, God will not place you in ministry. God does not put faithless believers, He does not trust faith, faithless believers for His work assignments. But faithfulness is rewarded. And when you're faithful in little things, He entrusts you with larger things. And these are, uh, these are important distinctions. And in particular between a gift and a ministry, a gift is a grace thing. You cannot earn and deserve your spiritual gift. But you can be faithful and entrusted with a ministry. Or you can be faithless and be removed from ministry. And that is... Uh, that should be very clear. All right, and so now, presently, we're in the midst of our second development, point B, 
the uh, illustrations of ministry calling, and we've covered uh, four of them. We've covered Moses in two different examples. First of all, when he had a premature non-calling, he took it upon himself to kill an Egyptian. He took it upon himself to present himself as a savior, as a deliverer. And uh, obviously uh, the Lord didn't bless that and, his pe- and the Jewish people weren't responding to that. And uh, he ends up fleeing for 40 years. And then uh, when the Lord really does call him, when he finally does see a burning bush, then there's uh, a reluctance and a resistance and uh, a slowness to follow what, uh, what the Lord would have there. All right? Under point two, we looked at Joshua and we looked at Timothy. Uh, under point three, we looked at David uh, being a shepherd. All right? illustrates how divergent background can be marvelous ministry preparation. You might think that it's miles apart. You might think that it has nothing to do with the ministry. How would this possibly be preparation for that? Well, God uses all kinds of things in different ways. I I worked for eight years in the jail and and, uh, people found out I was in seminary preparing to be a pastor and they said, wow, what a different career path. You go from the jail to a church. And I said, not really. There's sinners everywhere. You just got sinners in jail, you got sinners in church. Uh, you know, the thing is when church is over people are allowed to go home and you know, <laughs> in jail they're just kind of there until their sentence is up and that kind of thing. So you get different backgrounds. I like the fact that you have you know, lots of different pastors with lots of different backgrounds. So anyway, and here, here's a fun story. Friday when I, or Thursday when I took my dad to the doctor's office I met a man I worked with 18 years ago and uh, we're sitting in a waiting room and he says did you used to work for Travis County Sheriff's Office? And I looked up and I would not have recognized him if you'd have, you know, not, I mean, it'd been a while. And, uh, and he, he was much larger than he used to be back in those days. But uh, sure enough, yeah, we were fo- co-workers back in the 90s. And, and uh, since 1998 would have been the last time I would have seen him. But anyway, fun stuff there. Um, so divergent backgrounds can be marvelous ministry preparation. In David's case, being a shepherd, tending the sheep, equipped him to be the king of Israel. Uh, Wednesday night when we were looking at uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 2, we saw another premature non-calling. Uh, he was eager. He was uh, ready to be about his father's business. He uh, stayed behind in Jerusalem at the age of 12. Um, he was all excited. He was all ready, but his parents weren't ready. And that was curious to him. Uh, Mary said, you know, what are you doing here? And, and he said, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And so Wednesday night the message centered on that and, and it's curious. A lot of people struggle with this and it makes them uncomfortable to admit or to read the scriptures for plainly for what they see and to identify that Jesus was incorrect. Alright? Or wrong, shall I say. Alright? Not sinning, not out of fellowship, not carnal, not out of the will of God but factually incorrect about the timing of when he must be about his father's business. And when he asked that question, did you not know? Okay? And I don't mind turning this. Luke 2, it's close enough to Matthew 4. <laughs> Luke 2. And, and when you go home, get on the website and download this MP3 and listen to it because uh, we're not going to go into all the detail we went into. But when you read this question, understand what this says. Luke 2, uh, verse 48, when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Okay? Now when you're raising a perfect child, a child that never sins, uh, you recognize this could be a problem if, uh, if all of a sudden something happens unexpectedly. This is not normal. Um, but why are you treating us this way? And subjectively, this is what Joseph and Mary are dealing with. And uh, behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? That's the first question. Why? Why? And he wants to know. And then secondly, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Okay. Now the clear answer to that is no. But the the stunning uh, recognition is that he did not know that they did not know. That's why he's asking the question. Did you not know? He himself admits that he did not know, that they did not know. He thought they knew, right? Yeah, I know, it's kind of fun. But now he knows that they did not know, right? And they know that he knows that they did not know. But the point being, Jesus emptied himself, right? He humbled himself, he laid aside his omniscience, he laid aside his omnipresence, 
He didn't stop being God. But when the Word became flesh, He sovereignly limited, self-limited His own exercise of, of deity. And He exclusively operated in humanity so as to identify with you and with me. And He had to or else He couldn't go to the cross. He has to identify with us to be our substitute. And so these things become important. And so it is a premature non-calling. The Father hasn't called Him yet. And so it's interesting to me that when they did not understand the statement which He had made to them, so He went down with them and came to Nazareth and He continued in subjection to them. If, if, if you're ready for something and somebody else is not ready for the same thing, what do you do? Okay? And this is kind of applicable if, you know, I mean, it could be parents and children, it could be husbands and wives, it could be uh, pastors and deacons, it could be whatever. You got two believers and you're, you're ostensibly you're both seeking the will of God and one sees something and the other doesn't see the same thing. Well, why is that? And then what do you do with that? And so um, I think it's, it's very illustrative here that, uh, that Jesus continued in subjection to them um, in the will of God. In the will of God. All right. Now, this brings us to this morning in Matthew chapter 4. We've got the apostles. And the apostles present numerous varied illustrations. Remember, there can be divergent backgrounds in a lot of ways. The apostles present numerous varied illustrations, including fishermen, a tax collector, and a bounty hunter. Of course, that's Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, But we'll start with the uh, fishermen in Matthew chapter 4 some illustrations, and these should be pretty quick. I think we're familiar with all of them. And, uh, but we're going to see the principles that we've already studied, those five principles, and a lot of them get reinforced through the illustrations that we have. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 says, As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And He said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. And this is, uh, of course, this gets preached a lot, and this is famous and well known to us in that, that when we give the gospel, you know, we're fishing for men, and, and that's simple enough. But here's the thing. They are being called away from their secular work to pursue a, a ministry as disciples. They're not being called as preachers. They're being called as disciples. They're being called as students. They're being taken out of the workforce in order to become students so that someday, uh, having been faithful as students, they're then going to enter into ministry as Bible teachers, as communicators, as apostles. All right? And, uh, and this, is a, this is the pattern. This is the pattern that Jim Myers uses in Kiev, Ukraine. This is the pattern that I would love to use in Austin, Texas, although I admit the economics are a lot easier in Kiev, Ukraine, as far as that goes. All right? You can put a guy in an apartment and he can eat for 30 bucks a month or you know, something of that nature. Um, not so in Austin, Texas. Okay? The scale is, uh, is uh, much greater, and yet my father can afford it, so that's, uh, that's a good thing. So immediately they left their nets and followed him. And so what do you do when you hear the call? And uh, do you delay and do you make excuses or do you say, well, you know, first only on one condition or first I got to do this or first I got to do that. So they had no excuses and nothing else better to do. And they said, all right. And so immediately they do. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, (coughs) James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now what was wrong with Zebedee? You know, why wasn't he called? Why didn't he leave his boat? Why didn't he become a fisher of men? Why didn't he become as a, as a disciple? Was he not also called? And uh, aspects there. And so I think these illustrations are curious. Uh, when we get called, or we get called by ourselves, do we get called with a buddy, do we get called with two or three or four? Um, he ends up with 12 and one of them's not even saved. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but how do these things work? And, and how do these callings work? And what is the, um, what is the, uh, the heritage of that down the road? Okay, I can remember in 1990 when three of us all said, hey, I think God wants me to be a pastor. Three of us that were kids together at, at Evergreen Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington. And uh, three of us all said, hey, I think God wants me to be a pastor. And um, 
all three went to seminary and two never became pastors that I'm aware of. All right. But God knows what he's doing. They're still in the ministry. They're still serving him in the different capacities that they are teaching Greek classes or teaching Sunday school or writing books, doing other things. But only one of those three was ever placed in a pulpit and entrusted with a flock. Okay. So how does that work? How do, how do these things all come together? Trying to take these, these observations and, and what we're doing with illustrations and then relate them to our own experience here in uh, the modern world. All right, so there's the fishermen. What can a fisherman do? What kind of preachers a fisherman going to make anyway? You know, don't they just kind of, isn't it kind of lonely to be a fisherman? I mean, you're just there in the early morning hours, the sun's not even up yet, you're spreading your nets. And... All right. Well, not only fishermen, how about a tax collector? Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. So here's the calling of another disciple. And uh, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. I mean, it's as simple as that. Similar response from, from the fisherman. Here's the response from Matthew. He hears the call, he gets up and he goes. It's as simple as that. And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And so there is, a, this is kind of curious, we don't have a reaction in Matthew 4. It's not recorded uh, about Zebedee or the other servants or the other fishermen or what Peter and James, what their peers might have thought. Um, but here we have a reaction on the part of the Pharisees uh, seeing this reaction because there were other tax collectors that wanted to learn what Matthew had learned. There were other sinners that wanted to learn what was going on here. And so this, uh, this is curious to me as well, the, uh, the aspect on this. All right, first of all, Matthew's a tax collector and, and the, the, the two different types of tax collectors. He is the one that didn't want to, uh, to uh, pay any of the fees to hire a middleman. He did all the dirty work himself. He sat in his own booth. He collected his own taxes, got his own hands dirty, as it were. Um, this was such a, a despised uh, profession that most of the Jews that were involved in this, they, they wouldn't do it directly. They, they hired the middleman. They didn't want to be viewed by their fellow Jews as the turncoats, the traitors that they were as they're working on behalf of Rome. They're, they're raising the taxes to pay off Rome the taxes that Rome is entitled to. And it can be very lucrative because, you know, Rome wants a certain amount and you collect more than that, well then, hey, you know, you get to, that's, that's your profit, that's your, that's your business, and it could be a, a, a very profitable business, all right? And so profitable, in fact, that most of them uh, paid the fees to go ahead and, and uh, subcontract. Okay? They would go ahead and have middlemen and have other folks doing that so that uh, they could kind of obtain some anonymity and, and not be publicly displayed in such a shameful way. But if you're too cheap for that, <laughs> all right, if you really want every last drachma, every last hysterius you can get, then you're going to be like Matthew and you're going to be doing that. All right? And then you're going to be associated with sinners in, in the sense that you're never going to be ceremonially clean. You're never going to be accepted by your peers. You're never going to be welcome in the solemn assembly. You're never going to be embraced by the, the, the uh, priests and the Levites and, and by the uh, devout Jewish believers. And so, and so you just recognize that and say, okay, I'm fine with that. And if you're, if you're going to pursue that as an occupation, when are you ever going to be ceremonially clean? Um, in certain occupations, you never will be. And, uh, and then they're okay with that. And so in verse 10, it happened as, the, as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came or were dining with Jesus. Now when you read sinners in the Gospels, remember what that means? We told you about that. It's like when we read Jews, aren't they all Jews? When we read sinners, you know, isn't everybody a sinner? What, what, what's the point in highlighting this? Well, it becomes a term, it becomes a specific term related to those Jewish people that are not observant, they don't even try to be observant, they make no effort to live their lives according to the standards of Torah, according to any kind of Pharisaical expectations or any kind of rabbinic traditions, all right? Uh, we would call them, like today, you know, uh, maybe somebody's saved, but they don't really live that way, they don't pay attention to the Bible, they're never in church. They don't really identify with the body of Christ. And yeah, I mean, they're happy, they're not going to go to hell when they die, they're happy about that. 
but but seriously, since you know that day that they uh, they believed in Christ at a vacation Bible school or a Sunday school or a camp somewhere, they've not spent a lot of time thinking about spiritual things, and uh, and so what's the consequence there, right? Do they lose their salvation? Of course not. Nobody ever does. But they are not walking that Christian way of life. And that's the concept here. And we see this. And this is what uh, in the Gospels now uh, is typically referred to when you have uh, sinners often linked together with tax collectors, the two lowest things imaginable. And uh, so they were coming and they're dining with Jesus and his disciples. And they find right now they've got an instant fellowship with people that they would otherwise have nothing in common with. Why would he sit down and fellowship with fishermen? Why would he sit down and fellowship with a carpenter from Galilee? Why would he sit down and fellowship with, with uh, you know, we don't know what some of the other, with a, uh, Judas Iscariot was a Judean and we know uh, Simon the Zealot. Why would a tax collector sit down with a zealot? They would never have a meal together. And yet here they are. So when you do become a part of the body of Christ, when you do receive a call to the ministry, when you do uh, get separated from the workaday world and get into full-time ministry, you find that there is now a new fellowship, a new association that you're a part of. And then verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> okay, And this is, of course, the self-righteous crowd, the very religious crowd, devout, they would never associate with such things. They wouldn't defile themselves. To them it'd be defiling. To uh, That's what Pharisee is, is a set-apart one that, uh, that wouldn't come anywhere near these tax collectors with a 10-foot pole. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Well, what a no-brainer, <laughs> you know? So if you've got, if you've got a message that provides for, for uh, eternal life, well, then where are you going to go? And uh, there you have it. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. Do a Bible study out of Hosea, why don't you? Okay? And you know how insulting that is? The Pharisees to tell them, go and learn what this means? You know, like talking to a top-tier PhD today and say, have you not read or are you not aware? You know, just go and learn what this means. These guys uh, are just, you know, the highest of the educated people of his day. Go and learn what this means. And uh, Hosea, really? A minor prophet? Who reads those? And yet again and again and again, they don't do it, by the way. In a later chapter he says, you know, if you would have learned what this means, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. And I find that interesting also. All right, so we have uh, fishermen, we have a tax collector, and then finally a bounty hunter, Acts chapter 9. And this is the famous Damascus Road experience. Acts chapter 9. Now remember, we're illustrating calls to the ministry. We're not illustrating uh, salvation moments. We're not illustrating the, the, that pivotal moment when an unbeliever places their faith in the coming Messiah and receives eternal life, right? When Peter and James and Andrew and John, when those fishermen are called into the ministry, they're already saved before Jesus calls them into the ministry. When Matthew is being called into the ministry, he's already saved when he's called into the ministry. Okay? Not as easy to prove with Matthew, but I think it's, it's clear in, uh, in the fishermen, and it's also clear in the case of Paul. Although it's more frequent, it's very common for Damascus Road to be called Paul's salvation moment. We know from Galatians that it was not his salvation moment. But uh, we have here the, the work of Paul to uh, drag before people for trial. And uh, we see this at the beginning of the chapter. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now you talk about divergent backgrounds. <laughs> How about a persecutor of Jesus Christ? A born-again believer who was a persecutor of Jesus Christ. See, saved in the Old Testament, saved before the cross. And yet so caught up in arrogance, so caught up in religion, so caught up in all the zeal. He talks about his zeal, not in accordance with knowledge. And how many believers are so caught up in a zeal that they don't know the will of God when it slaps them in the face. And so here he is. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogue 
I went to the high priest and he got letters from the high priest uh, to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And this is so illegal on so many different levels in the sense that Jerusalem's under one Roman jurisdiction, Damascus is under a different Roman jurisdiction, and Paul, completely unauthorized, is going to drag uh, people from one to another and put them on a, on a Jewish trial here. And uh, as he was traveling it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is what we have. And this is a question. And God uses this technique. God uses this. He asks questions of his children to elicit the response to teach them, to teach them what they need to know. It's not that he's ignorant of what's happening. When he goes to Adam and says, where are you? And God knows where Adam is. He knows they're hiding. He knows the fig leaves. He knows all of that. Same thing here. God knows the answer before he asks the question. And now Paul's going to answer a question with a question. In verse 5, he said, who are you, Lord? Why does he ask that? Why has that been bugging him? (laughs) What has been bugging him in the weeks and the months leading up to this? What has been bugging him? Because he's serving Yahweh. He's serving Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, as a faithful Pharisee, as a devout Jewish man. And those that he's been arresting and putting into jail and beating and testifying against, they also claim to be devout Jewish men, men and women. And they're making claims that this Jesus that they're serving is the Yahweh that Paul is serving. And Paul doesn't like that. That bugs him to death. And yet, when he's struck by the power of God here and the flashing light and the voice, and he says, who are you, Lord? That's the question. And he's going to get it answered. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it must be told you what you must do. It will be told you what you must do. Okay? And one verb you never find anywhere in this is pistuo. You never find believe. This is not uh, where Paul believes in Jesus Christ so as to be saved, okay? Because he's already saved. But this is what had to happen again and again and again through the early part of the book of Acts, or through all of the book of Acts, is the apostles kept encountering Old Testament believers. Old Testament believers that need to learn about the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because they got saved. I think Saul was saved in his childhood. He was a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. He grew up in a Bible-believing home. He talks to Timothy about the scriptures that from childhood you've known the scriptures that are able to lead you to salvation. And there is no reason to think that Saul of Tarsus was not saved in Tarsus as a young man in his, in his, as a boy in his parents' home. An Old Testament believer looking forward to the coming Christ. And then the Christ comes. See, can you imagine? What's that like? <laughs> when you're already saved believing in a coming Christ And then the Christ comes. And then because of your pride and your arrogance and your religion and your theology and your school and your religious leaders and all the rest, you don't like them. In fact, you reject them. So no, that's not him. Okay? It's a very unique time of human history. It can only happen at that that age. Okay? Nobody today can get saved looking forward to a coming Christ. Everybody today gets saved believing in the Christ who died and rose again. We're very clear on that. So, um, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And uh, that's kind of curious to me. You may uh, hear a call and other people think you're crazy. (laughs) All right, well, there it is. And so they bring him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and now they ate and are drank. And a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and I love this guy. And he's a disciple, and he's in the Word of God, and he, the Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Not who are you, Lord, but here I am, Lord. He knows who the Lord is. He's a disciple, and he's in the will of God. And he gets his instructions now. Get up and go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas, for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Not that he's an unbeliever and he needs the gospel. Not that you've got to tell him about the death, burial, and resurrection, but he is praying. 
he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. All right, so there it is. And so here's the role, and another believer gets to come alongside and take part. I find that interesting too. But Ananias answered, Lord, are you sure about that? (laughs) Really? I've heard about this guy. Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Not just once or twice. I've heard a lot of people. And, you know, Lord, you might not be aware of this. This guy, he's a bad guy. He's done much harm to your saints in Jerusalem. All right? And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. How do they know that? How do they know that? Isn't that interesting? You know, if uh, there's a bounty hunter that's got a warrant, it's a secret warrant, it's been signed by the high priest, he's going to travel, he's going to put a lot of them under arrest. How do you know that if you're living in Damascus? See? I think there was a lot of this in the early church. I think there were gifted prophets in the early church. I think that they had... uh, they had warnings about certain things ahead of time. And here Ananias is being told ahead of time, you need to go to this house on this street and meet this man and lay hands on him. Because he's going to be identified with the body of Christ. The laying on of hands is identification. Not just uh, for putting your hands on a sheep and identifying with a sacrificial animal, but for believers to put hands on other believers. For Bible teachers to put their hands on other Bible teachers. Where we have ordination by the laying on of hands. So Ananias is going to identify with Saul of Tarsus and he's being called into the ministry. So the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Notice that order, Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Paul typically takes it in backwards order because of his patriotism and his love for the Jewish people. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's what a disciple does. We're called to suffer. We're called to take up our cross. We're called to follow Him. So welcome to the ministry. And this is what happens. Ananias departed to enter the house after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. See, there's no expression of faith. There's no expression of belief. He's not receiving eternal life on this day. He's already had eternal life since his childhood. But he is being ushered into the body of Christ, crossing over from being an Old Testament believer to being a New Testament believer. And as such, he identifies with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Took food and was strengthened. All right, so that's interesting to me. The different uh, people. And this is, um, I, I started to share this story Wednesday and I ran out of time when um, Jack Blakely, Pastor John Blakely from Portland Bible Church, I was 20 year, 20, 21 years old, 21 years old, and uh, thinking about being a pastor. Never been to Texas, hadn't met Ralph yet, didn't know, but thinking about it. And uh, John Eichmann said, uh, hey, I've got a weekend Bible conference in Portland, why don't you come with me? So I did. And I was able to drive and, and go with him and take part in the weekend in Portland. Got to meet Pastor John Blakely. And, uh, and I told him, I said, uh, I was thinking about being a pastor. And uh, he put his arm on my shoulder, he looked me right in the eye, and he's an older man. He uh, looked me right in the eye and he said, don't do it. Just like that, he said, don't do it. Then he said, unless you have to. Okay? If you can be, if you can be uh, what did he say? If you can be content, not successful, you can be successful doing a lot of things, but content. If you can be content doing other things, then do those other things. But if you can't be content, if the only thing that makes you content is serving the Lord and teaching the Word of God and studying and teaching, if that's the only thing that gives you contentment, then you'll know that you're called to be a pastor. You're called to be in the ministry. Otherwise, don't do it. And, and, uh, and it made such an impact on me and, and it was so fervent and it was so um, just direct that uh, I, I still tell the story to this. I'm going to keep telling this story for years and years to come. And, uh, and it's the only time I ever met him because he went to be with the Lord after that. I met him in, this would have been in April 
1990, and I think it was August or September when, when he passed away. And, uh, and that. Anyway, his widow's still there and part of the church there. But um, in any event, this was, uh, this was that role. And so when I think of Ananias with Paul, when I think about um, Eli with Samuel, okay, when you read that story, I should have included that as an illustration, added Samuel. Yeah, in fact, tack on Samuel's name on point two. Joshua, Timothy, and Samuel. All good illustrations of youthful calls to the ministry. Youthful preparation. Samuel was just a boy. And the Lord kept waking him up every night and he kept running into Eli thinking that Eli was calling for him and it was the Lord that was calling for him. Okay? You familiar with that? All right. I love that story. It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous illustration. And, and in particular, because Eli wasn't really a hero. He was kind of a carnal thug himself, right? But, but he was used by the Lord to wake up Samuel to uh, what was happening there. All right, so those are the illustrations of ministry calling. Let's talk about some dangers and warnings. Dangers and warnings of, mil- of ministry calling, all right? And there are several. In fact, I've got seven of them. The, um, the fact is that when you uh, obey the Lord, all right, I, I first got I got to say, there's, it's more dangerous to ignore your calling, okay? So don't let any of these things keep you from serving the Lord or for going forth and using your gift and pursuing your ministry and accomplishing your effects. Uh, don't take any warning as a, as a thing about, well, it's better not to do it in the first place. No. Uh, you're much better off obeying the will of God and facing the consequences than defying the will of God and facing those consequences. But there are dangers. And uh, first of all, Let's start with this, 2 Corinthians 6, 3. It is possible to discredit the ministry. As shameful as that is, as um, uh, we just got to see it for what it is. 2 Corinthians 6, 3. You can discredit the ministry. And so every day, if you're in ministry, you need to thank God for His grace to put you there and then ask Him for His provision and His strength and His leading to keep you there and ask Him to remove the things that would uh, bring dishonor to Jesus Christ, things that would discredit the ministry. And so, um, as we read it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, working together with Him, we also, and, and this is working together with Him, this is, this is identifying the Father's work in and through us for His good pleasure. Okay, that's how chapter 5 ends. We have this ministry of reconciliation, right? Every one of us, every single one of us, this is one ministry we all have. We might have other ministries that are various and different and and so forth, but here's one ministry we all have. We all have the ministry of reconciliation. That's 517. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things are have come. These are all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's what we have. You and I all have that ministry. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So that's us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. So you see how this works? We are in the ministry and we are pursuing this as a ministry under the leadership of Jesus Christ, but it's the Father who does the work. The Father accomplishes the effects. And so God is making an appeal through us. Don't be a chicken when you're given the gospel. The Father is making the appeal through you. And He's good at it. Okay, He's qualified. He's well rehearsed. So if you think you're not, just do it. Be obedient. <coughs> and you are qualified. Because he's committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. <coughs> All right. So, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is what the Father did. The Father judicially imputed all of our sins to His Son. 
The Father judicially did that so that He could then impute the Son's righteousness to us. And we now have His righteousness. So, working together with Him, we get to become fellow workers with with the Father. The Father who did all this. Working together with Him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What do we do now that we're saved? For He said, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And here's this key verse, verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything. Anything. So that the ministry will not be discredited. And the tragic thing is, when these famous things come up, and then sadly, they come up to where they then become punchlines, they become proverbs, they become the, the laughing stock, they become proverbially uh, the illustration of everything that's wrong in Christendom because, uh, you know, um, the public failure, because of the way in which they are exalted as an idol, as a paragon, as some kind of a, a, a celebrity, and then, uh, then the, the failures become known, okay? It's, which is ridiculous because every pastor is a sinner. But the, the, the fact is, is that they get set up as this moral example and then they, the world finds out what a hypocrite they are because of whatever, okay? Think of uh, um, Jimmy Swaggart and all the, the, the tragedy there, okay? And uh, all the, and, and why is Joel Olstein? why is he a, a punchline? in so many jokes, in so many Babylon B articles, in so many uh, other things. Okay? It shouldn't be that way. And it's heartbreaking that it is. The ministry gets discredited in uh, such circumstances. But in everything. Alright? So you have the in anything and the in everything contrast here. No cause for offense in anything, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. And so to keep from discrediting the ministry, you stay humble and you identify as a servant of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. So if you reach a point where you cross a line and say, that's it, God, I'm done, you're discrediting the ministry. You're, you're showing this world that, uh, that there's something more important to you than obeying God. That, uh, that God's grace is not sufficient, that God's word doesn't work, that prayer is useless, that you can't handle it. So why should they? Why should they listen to anything you preach if you're going to bail on God? And so you end up discrediting the ministry in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, and all these things. If you decide that you're going to bail on obeying your ministry, you're discrediting your ministry. And I think uh, it's, it's neat that imprisonment is on that list. Going to jail is not a, a barrier to ministry. Well, why did you go to jail? <laughs> okay, For right reasons or wrong reasons? Why did you go to jail? As an evildoer or for the name of Christ? Were you being persecuted? See, Paul went to jail and it accelerated his ministry. And he didn't go to jail for a crime he committed. He didn't go to jail as a, as a lawbreaker. All right, so we don't want to discredit the ministry. And uh, again, it's sad when pastors' names become uh, bywords for, uh, for that. I read one just this morning, actually. It was a Joel Olstein thing. You know how sad? It was funny. I mean, I laughed. But then I thought, why am I laughing? I should be praying. This is a... a pastor of a church. The Lord can get a hold of him and he can start exegeting passages and feeding his flock, teaching line upon line, precept upon precept, watching the thousands drop to dozens and, <laughs> and then uh, there you go. Okay, Stay faithful. Don't discredit the ministry. Don't place your self-interest over the interests of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.21 and this, this came up when we were illustrating with Timothy the other night. Philippians 2.21, placing self-interest over the interests of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.21, that's a a danger, that's a warning. Because that's a danger, uh, Scripture warns us not to do this. Self-interest. Was was Jesus on the cross because of his own self-interest? 
No. He was the one human being that didn't need the cross. But he's the one human being qualified to go to the cross. And so he was there, not thinking about himself, thinking about you, thinking about me. He had you personally in mind. you believe that? That he was interceding for each one of us, accepting our guilt, accepting our punishment. And so this is, the, uh, this is the case here. And if you've got a crowd of people in training, you know, um, whatever you have, it's a, it's a one-year school, a two-year school, a three-year school, whatever it is, and so you've got your, uh, your older students, your younger students, um, how much Greek did Timothy had, how much Hebrew did he had, how much systematic theology did he have at this point. You know, you've got to have the academics. We're not mocking that or minimizing that. But this passage does not stress the academics. This passage stresses the spiritual qualifications. So verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. The ministry is about the edification of others. It's about the welfare of others, serving them, teaching them, encouraging them, helping them. Any ministry, any ministry is about the body of Christ, not about yourself. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That would include Titus, that would include Luke, that would include Aristarchus, that would include Demas. We can list out for you the people that were worth traveling with Paul at this stage. We can correlate it with the book of Acts. We can correlate it with um, others that he sends greetings. The brethren who are with me greet you. And you can go to the end of these, these books. He's got people by name that he mentions in Colossians. People by name that he mentions in Ephesians in these, in these epistles. People that are mentioned by name in the book of Acts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans. We know who his traveling companions are. We know who's with him at this stage of his ministry. And they're not ready to do what Timothy's ready to do. But Timothy is. He says, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. That's Dokimazo. They must first be proven. They must first be tested. That he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And so we taught this when we were illustrating in the youthful uh, calls to ministry that can happen with Joshua, that can happen with Timothy, and then you can add, as we said, add Samuel to that list. And uh, grounded at a young age, why not start serving at a young age? You're prepared, you're ready. There you go. So there's a, a danger sign. How about entering into ministry hastily? Okay, so I think you can make a mistake two directions. You can not enter soon enough. If you're ready, why not? But then you can also enter too soon. 1 Timothy 5.22 Be uh, careful here. Don't lay hands on a man too hastily. Kind of makes me laugh a little bit because in the same 1 Timothy when he is told, let no one look down on your youthfulness, Right? then he's also told to not lay hands on a man too hastily. That there will be people even younger than him, perhaps, or, or uh, have trained less, that are not yet ready to be ordained. So 5.22 here. Um, as he's interacting with fellow elders and with men in training who will soon become elders, Verse 17 says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so you may have a plurality of elders in a flock, and not every elder is going to rule, and not every elder is going to teach. They should be able to teach, but not every elder does. And this is how uh, Timothy is supposed to interact with the plurality of elders here. And so uh, there's those that you set apart and those that you financially support, and the ones that are teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And, and a flock is not wrong when they set a guy apart from secular work and uh, say, we want you to study so that you can pastor this flock. And Austin Bible Church did that in 1999 and I've, we haven't gone hungry, right? 
any fool can plainly see. We're, we're eating well. We're doing all right. And, um, and that officer I met, by the way, he said, wow, you really did it. You really became a pastor. Yeah, <laughs> God really did it. Okay, kind of fun. Um, and so, uh, but there are, there are denominations or there are traditions, faith background. They don't want to have paid clergy. They don't want to have uh, full-time pastors. They have secular reasons for why. They don't want to have any authority. And they've got other things in, in their traditions of what they're doing. But it's not unbiblical. And this passage, I think, spells it out very well. And, uh, and there you go. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So there's protection there against false accusations. But yet there's not exemption from church discipline. As it says in verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also be fearful of sinning. Alright, so we understand how that works in the church discipline context. Um, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels, His elect angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And this is where we have to be objective. We have to be purely biblical. We can't be sentimental. We can't rush things because of whatever it is. Okay. We don't show favoritism because, uh, you know, we've got four or five pastoral students, but one of them happens to be, uh, you know, the son of the pastor. <laughs> All right, so do we, do we front load him? Do we accelerate him? Does he get special treatment? Or whatever else. Partiality, no. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. See? And here's why, because it's serious. And thereby share in the sins of others. Do you want to have a koinonia, a share? Or it might be a metakoi, I forget which one it is there. But either way, do you want to have a share in the sins of others? Put a man in a flock that's not ready for it. Okay? And understand who Jesus Christ is going to hold accountable. Keep yourself free from sin. And so this becomes a, a dire warning. That's why when you gather different men together and they are examining not only the doctrine of the candidate, examining his views, examining the, the beliefs that he holds, the, the biggest thing we're examining is, is he humble? Is he ready? Does, is, he, is this too soon? Has he understood that it's not him, it's the concerns of the Lord, not the concerns of self? And uh, if he's not yet to that point of humility, then he needs to, to wait. We can't identify with that yet. Okay? And this becomes a, a huge warning. I don't, I've had it happen once with a phone call, you know, did you lay hands on this man and what, what were you thinking? And, and uh, were you a part of that man's ordination? Very angry phone call. I'd say, well, yes I was. What's on your mind? <laughs> okay, let's talk about it. Let's pray. And whatever else. Okay? Um, with respect, okay, it wasn't Cliff and it wasn't it wasn't uh, Dan, I'll tell you that right now. Some of you know him, and I'm not going to tell any more, but anyway. But see, here's the thing. And, and even beyond that, I've got so many angry calls over the years. I should create a class on how to handle angry calls. <laughs> One lady wanted to tell me about, about a pastor that ordained me. And something that happened in the 1970s, 1980s. I said, lady, I don't care. Okay, you know, whatever you're going to tell me, if it was a sin, and he's confessed that sin, and he's in fellowship, man, what are you telling me this for? All right. So, don't enter the ministry hastily, and don't facilitate somebody else entering into the ministry too hastily. And that's the thing. And people got all excited. They get excited about a young man, about B3 or Radley or you know, another young man. Oh, you're going to be a pastor. And oh, you just love Jesus so much. And oh, you're on fire. And they got all this zeal. And uh, they want to push, 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 push. And a young man can respond poorly to that and think, under pressure, think, oh, wow, I guess I better, I be- I guess I better go be a pastor. And uh, so don't, uh, don't enter ministry hastily. Don't push somebody else into the ministry to hastily. There's the danger of uh, regrets, thoughts of returning. Luke 9, this is putting your hand to the plow and looking back. 
Luke chapter 9. This was my keynote address. I was asked to give a commencement uh, message at the Word of God Bible uh, Seminary, Bible College in uh, Kiev to a graduating class, and this was the text I used. Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. And this is kind of... uh, these guys are about the opposite of, of what we've seen already with the fishermen and with Matthew and the examples where Jesus says, follow me, and they're just up and gone. These guys are making excuses. <clears throat> so as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's a curious answer to a uh, prideful statement. Okay, and uh, he doesn't say, great, glad to have you, let's go, right? But he makes a statement about being homeless. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have zeal that would love to do this, but what are, they, what are they really thinking? What do they think the ministry is all about? And uh, so he said to another, follow me. And so here's, a, here's somebody who says, I'll go with you wherever, and he doesn't tell them, follow me. He just warns them with that statement about being homeless. But then he says to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. See, only on one condition. I've got to do this first. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, uh, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. That doesn't seem reasonable. Uh, unreasonable rather. Does that seem outrageous? Can I at least pack a toothbrush? Can I say goodbye to somebody? Is it, you know, do I have to get up right here right now? And He said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you wonder, who were some of these friends he was going to say goodbye to and who was going to talk him out of it? And this is a warning, saying, okay, go say your goodbyes, but they're going to warn you. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you talk about regrets and thoughts of returning and being in the ministry for some length of time and wishing you weren't, being in the ministry uh, and thinking, man, I never should have done this. It's, uh, it was wrong, okay? That it wasn't a call. Uh, I was just pursuing pride and, or whatever the, the case might be. And you realize, man, this is not what... Uh, uh, we don't want to have those regrets, Okay? That's why you want to have your eyes open. Any, any disillusionments, any, uh, any uh, Ralph said he wanted to pop all my disillusionments before I was ready for ordination. Whatever dreams of glamour, whatever, whatever you have in mind. And, and, and for me it was tough in, in some respects because my childhood pastor was so dynamic. Oh my goodness, he was, he was handsome. He was, he was you know, physically attractive. Uh, I mean, he was... The, the, the girls were all in love with him and the men wished they were him and, and it's just and he was he was and he was great in the scriptures. He knew the Lord. He was he was he was the kind of guy you just go, wow. You know, and there was reason to be appreciative and attracted and in whatever the case may be. And uh if if that's your idea of what the ministry is, <laughs> end that now. All right, it's not all people telling you all these great things and the compliments and whatever, whatever. End that now. All right, don't want to have any regrets or thoughts of returning. And uh, the illustrations there. Three more, but I'm out of time. Uh, We'll come back to this on Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. We've got three more. And then we've got two points of summary and conclusion that uh, we've got to spend some time on. And that will uh, wrap up this study. Then we'll be ready to move on to the final paragraph of Philippians chapter 1 where we get to learn to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we get to learn the power that, that comes when uh, matters of life and death are, are secondary to serving Jesus Christ and edifying uh, one another in the, in the will of God. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Father, again for the stability that comes in the truth. I I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding and make clear um, your will in all all things, how to make application in in the verses we've seen. Some of us, Father, are considering various ministry callings. Bob and Elvira hit the road yesterday. 
Father, and uh, now they're one day closer to, uh, to Seattle. So uh, bless them in their pursuits and uh, make clear what you have for them in, in uh, their ministry. And uh, it's, it's a blessing for us, Father, to watch these things open, to watch these things unfold, to see your plan, uh, Father, day by day and moment by moment. So thank you for, uh, for all that you do. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is our fellowship time.